For 30 years, Anthony Ray Hinton was a dead man walking. I asked him again, why am I being arrested? And he finally turned around and he looked at me and he said, we're charging you with first-degree robbery, first-degree kidnap, first-degree attempted murder. And I said, oh, you got the wrong person. This is Podgressive South. I'm Will Lockamay. I host a radio show in Birmingham, Alabama. Also work in television. I'm Heather Milam, and I am the former Democratic candidate for Alabama's Secretary of State and a former newspaper owner. Each week, we're going to be discussing issues that we think matter not just to the South and Southeast, but to the entire country. And we're going to tell our point of view. From Alabama. Let's get started. Well, today we are going to be talking about injustice in the criminal justice system. Injustice uh, in the justice system. That's, the, that's not right. <laughs> we'll have Dr. Stephen Austad join us, find out his involvement with Ray's case, and we'll also hear from Ray himself. All right, let's start from the beginning. What's some background on this whole situation? Slavery was abolished in 1865 when the 13th Amendment passed Congress. It stated, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. What that is saying is that the law allows for involuntary servitude as a punishment for crime. Brian Stevenson, the director of the Equal Justice Initiative, said mass incarceration has to be viewed as a manifestation of our longer history of racial inequality. Interestingly, and we'll hear a little bit more about this, Mr. Henton himself said that when the arresting officer came to his house to arrest him, he said to him, I don't care if you're guilty or not. He said, let me tell you something. I don't care whether you did it or didn't do it, but I'm going to make sure that these charges sticks, and I'm going to make sure you found guilty of it. And I said, for a crime I didn't commit? And he said, didn't I just tell you I don't care whether you did it or didn't do it? And as we drove a little farther, he turned around and he said something that I will never forget. He said, there's five things that are going to convict you. And he asked me, would you like to know what they are? And I said, yes. He said, number one, you're black. Number two, a white man is going to say you shot him. Whether you shot him or not, I don't care. And he said, number three, you're going to have a white prosecutor. Number four, you're going to have a white judge. And number five, by all accounts, you're going to have an all-white jury. And he said, do you know what that spell? And he repeated the word conviction five times. He said, conviction, 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 conviction. And I can't imagine, as a black man in Birmingham, Alabama, being willed off to jail, having not done anything, hearing that. That sort of brings us up very very condensed history to kind of set up today's show. Heather, I was aware of Ray Hinton's case just from the news. I just saw everything that everybody else saw, that he had been released and spent 30 years, almost 30 years on death row. And my friend, Dr. Stephen Austad, reached out and he said, hey, would you like to have Mr. Hinton on to discuss this? And of course, we jumped at the chance. And so we spoke with him recently, and um, you'll be hearing excerpts from that interview throughout this podcast. But also, we have Dr. Austad here with us. Now, Dr. Austad, you work at UAB, but you're not here on behalf of UAB or in that capacity at all today. Uh, yes, you're right, Will. I'm here as a private citizen uh, with a serious interest, though, in the criminal justice system and the way that uh, evidence is used in the criminal justice system. So as a, a biology guy and an expert on aging and science, how does that affect the justice system? Well, well, it doesn't. I, I, I've always been uh, interested in the way science and the public interact with one another. And so I've always been uh, interested in the use of science in public affairs. And, and 
the most obvious use, particularly since the advent of DNA evidence is the way it's used in the criminal justice system. Or, and sometimes maybe the, the lack of the way it's used in the criminal yeah, justice the, system. Yeah, the, the incompetence with which it's used in the criminal justice system. Because if you look at the rules of evidence and the way that scientific evidence, actually all evidence, is used in criminal trials, it, it looks almost medieval. It has nothing to do with modern scientific reasoning, but it could easily. It's just that there hasn't been the, the uh, motivation to change things. And how did you get involved with Mr. Hinton's case? Well, Mr. Hinton was released just about the time that I moved to Birmingham. And so I was familiar with his case. And when I was writing an article on uh, scandals in various uh, police labs around the country, I remembered his case and I used it as a kind of uh, an example of what I meant, because the key evidence in his case was a, was a bad ballistics match. And then long, not long after that, I was at a film festival which showing a, fo- a film a about a bunch of people who'd been exonerated from death row, and he was there. And I introduced myself, and it turns out he had my newspaper column in his pocket. So uh, we became uh, bonded, I think, at that point. That's why I asked him to be on his show, and that's why I dug even deeper into his uh, case than I had before. Do you find that racial disparity affects the justice system, even when it when we're talking about this evidence that that you specialize in, that you take a great interest in. So the key thing that you need to understand about this case is there was absolutely zero physical evidence, either at the scene of the either murder or in his car or in his house. The only thing that the police had to go on was this gun that they found that it belonged to his mother that, according to him, hadn't been fired for 25 years. But the police somehow made a miraculous match of bullets that they fired from that gun to bullets at the scene. In your trial, it is my understanding that your pro bono attorney literally brought to the stand a one-eyed expert who had no expertise. Absolutely. Literally. A, I mean, it sounds like a joke. That's a true thing. But it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, he brought a one-eyed ballistic civil engineer. Civil engineer. Not a ballistic expert. Yeah. But he was a civil engineer. And when he went to test the bullets, he got on the witness stand and said that he had to ask for help to turn on the machine. He didn't know even how to turn on the machine. And he begged the forensics people at the, to help him. And once they showed him how to turn on the machine, he didn't even know how to line it up to see the bullets. And he said, all I could see was my fingers. And yet the judge declared him an expert. Now, initially, I just put this down to incompetence, because once those slugs were examined by a team of nationally, internationally known experts, they said, not only could we not match it to that gun, we don't even think, we can't even tell if they came from the same gun. I thought it was simple incompetence. But as I looked into it more, read more in the case, I decided that it wasn't. He was framed. There was no question about it. They couldn't make any match between the bullets. They couldn't tell anything about it until he was the suspect. Suddenly they had this miraculous match. So what you're saying is, do you think that race played a role in his conviction? Oh, I think it played an enormous uh, role. I think it probably played a role in his false identification because the way he was basically identified is that there was evidence that uh, it's somebody with a light-skinned black man with a beard, and he fit that. And then 
the person that he wasn't charged with murdering was was a third victim that was actually shot in the head, same M.O., and after he was shot in the head, later he picked Ray out of a, out of a police lineup. And it's well known that race plays a tremendous role in eyewitness misidentification. So I think it's absolutely clear that race was there. And then I think the police uh, had uh, wanted to convict a black man. I mean, I mean, this was the 1980s. I think there was a lot of racism uh, here. It burdens me a little bit as an Alabamian, as a Southerner, that we're still dealing with such racial issues. And let's be real and clear, the 1980s was just yesterday. I, I absolutely agree. And some of the people that were involved in that case are still around. And it's time for us to acknowledge this, because until we acknowledge it, we're not going to move beyond it, I'm afraid. Well, luckily, there are people like Brian Stevenson who are not just acknowledging it, but making a name for themselves, and people are starting to listen. If you have not read the book Just Mercy, it's, it should be mandatory reading. You all stop what you're doing right now, put hit balls, go read it, and then you can come back. Because it's fantastic, and it does talk about Mr. Hinton's case as well. Right. Although when that book was written, it was, his case was still in process. So I would also recommend to the listeners that they read Mr. Hinton's book, which is called The Sun Does Shine, which was uh, Oprah Winfrey's summer uh, book club choice uh, last summer. She's very excited about that book. I watched a video of uh, Mr. Hinton and Oprah on CBS Morning Show, and it was so delightful. And one of the things that resonated with, I think, me and everyone who has met or has seen Mr. Hinton in, a, in an interview is the joy that he has in life. And in one of the interviews, he said, you can rob me of my years, but you cannot rob me of my joy. And that was truly brought me to tears. Yesterday, I was watching videos and sent Will multiple texts that said, I'm not sure I can get through this podcast today. Uh, <laughs> we might have to take a break just to allow my emotions to sort of swell over me. He is a remarkable person an absolutely remarkable person. And he doesn't understand how remarkable he is. That's what makes him even more remarkable. Yeah. You wrote an article once about the jury system, right? Which is something that it would take so many huge leaps to get away from. But what you wrote made so much sense. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So I started thinking of this actually when I was on an airplane that, that, that was uh, in an emergency holding pattern, I was about to land, and suddenly the voice came on, and we pulled out of the landing, and they said, well, we'll let you know what's happening uh, shortly. And it turned out there was a problem with the landing gear. That's terrifying. Um, they, they weren't sure if it was down or not. But what I started thinking is, now, how are they going to figure out the best way to proceed here? They could call the the, the mechanics, get all the mechanics together. They could... Um, talk to pilots who've flown this plane, or they could give all the manuals, all the service manuals to the passengers and say, here, you you guys figure it out. And I thought, that's a perfect analogy for the jury system, because the jury system is purposely composed of people who know nothing whatsoever about the standards of evidence, the way evidence is used, with the idea that somehow their lack of expertise is going to be useful in getting to the truth of the matter. And that just strikes me as, from a scientific standpoint, that's bizarre. I use DNA all the time in my lab. I could never serve on a jury that had DNA evidence involved in it, even though I know a lot more about it than the prosecutor or the defense lawyer. I would be automatically excluded. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the way that Alabama law provides compensation 
for those wrongly incarcerated. Mr. Hinton is one of these individuals, and it seems that still in 2019, four years after he was exonerated, he is still fighting for that compensation. Can you talk us through that process and how we got to where we are today and the lack of success? Sure. Uh, Ostensibly, on the surface of it, there is a law. That law says, it was passed in 2001, that if you are wrongly incarcerated, that you are due compensation of a minimum of $50,000 per year. So that's a law on the books. Now, the problem with the law is that it doesn't provide for any automatic restitution. It has to go in front of a legislative committee. It has to be passed by the committee. The legislature then has to appropriate the money. And one year, Mr. Hinton got through all of these uh, steps, except to the point where the legislature had to appropriate the money. And they never got a chance because it got held up in committee. The bill never made it out of the committee. It never made it out of committee. And the next year, the same thing happened again. And I think also adding insult to injury, meanwhile, since Mr. Hinton's release, the Alabama legislature has passed a different bill related to capital punishment called the Fair Justice Act, which aims to limit the appeals of death row inmates, and it speeds up executions. And I think Mr. Hinton has said that were that passed while he was on death row, it's very likely he would not be alive today. That's right. The ballistics evidence that sent him to death row was actually um, questioned in 2002, but it took until 2015 to get him exonerated. There are many ways to put delays into the justice system. So if you have these time limits, it just encourages the prosecution to delay and delay and delay till the statute is no longer relevant. And so that was a terrible law. And I think he's a wonderful person to talk about exactly how terrible that law is. Brian Stevenson, the Equal Justice Initiative, point out that for every nine people that have been executed, one person has been exonerated. That's a shocking statistic. It's it's terrible, but it, it just shows that really the way that evidence is used in the criminal justice system is very crude. The thing is, scientists know that, and scientists have weighed in. The National Academy of Science was made up of our most brilliant sciences in the country. Has actually published a huge report on the use of evidence in criminal trials in 2009, and that established a committee to look into it, a National Committee on Forensic Evidence. Unfortunately, that committee was disbanded uh, two years ago by Jeff Sessions when he was Attorney General of the U.S., So right now, we're not looking for ways to improve the system, which is really unfortunate. The numbers that Will just pointed out, you know, if you were to walk onto a plane being told that somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of our flights go down, I suspect you would not ever fly. No, and and that's a really good point because the the business, the human enterprise that's the most mistake-free is actually aviation. And the reason the aviation industry has that record is because when mistakes have been made and when accidents have happened, they do their due diligence and research and they change whatever caused that. Right. And in the legal system, what they do is they refuse to admit that they've made a mistake. And the perfect case of this is is Ray Hinton, where the prosecuting uh, side of the case has never admitted that they made a mistake. But if you never admit that you make mistakes, you're never going to get better at not making mistakes in the future. February 26, 2016, Assistant Attorney General James Haltz in a letter to the committee said the Office of the Alabama Attorney General strongly disagrees with any representation that Mr. Hinton 
has been exonerated. This, of course, after you had been exonerated. And vehemently opposes any compensation in this case. Boy, that attorney general's office does not like you. Hmm. Well, the attorney general's office does not like anyone that showed that they made a mistake. Of course, even a scientist understands that the justice system is supposed to presume innocence. So Mr. Hinton really doesn't have to prove he's innocent, which is hard to do when you're in prison. But it's the justice system that has to prove that he's guilty. And I don't know why he didn't remember that. Maybe he missed law school on that day. How is Mr. Hinton doing now? Mr. Hinton, I think, is, is, is doing well. His book sold well. Um, he's has had a lot of speaking engagements. Uh, he's a remarkably happy person considering uh, what he's gone through. The one thing that bothers him, and I understand this, it's not the money that he hasn't got. He would like an acknowledgement from the state that they made a mistake. I haven't got anything. I haven't even had anyone to apologize to me. On April the 3rd, 2015, the county jail opened the door and said I was free. The state of Alabama haven't said, do you need to see a psychiatrist, a psychologist, after spending 30 years in the cage. Sitting there knowing that you were innocent, sitting there knowing that the uh, appointed attorney, uh, defense attorney for you, is not fighting ferociously to keep you free for a wrongful conviction on having to turn around and see your mom and she's losing her child uh, forever and while he was in death row uh, you know she passed and the first place he wanted to go to when he got out was to her gravesite. and so his friend Lester who you'll read a lot about and hear a lot about once you read his book and and learn more about Mr. Hinton uh, they rode <laughs> to the gravesite, and he has this great funny story about how um the this he was riding in the car and there was this woman's voice emanating from the vehicle and he thought who is this who's this white woman behind us and he's motioning to lester like look in the back somebody's back there but it was the gps system <laughs> and he had not he had not experienced that you know for 30 years uh, one other thing that i wanted to talk about was the the family that was developed on death row <laughs> Yeah, I just wanted to ask you, Ray, it seems to me like one of the toughest things would be you're in there with these men, and some of them you must have gotten to know pretty well, yes. but they're disappearing, and they're being executed, yes. or they're hanging themselves. Was How did you deal with that? Uh, a total of 54 men was executed. I think a total of 11 took their own life. And you try to sit there and rationalize in your mind what made this man take his own life? And I came to believe that because they didn't have no hope. They wasn't able to trick their mind the way I did it and to find strength in reading the Bible and find strength knowing that I had a friend that would come in to see me every month. Every man on death row don't have support. But I had the support of my mother, and I had support of my friend from childhood, and that gave me the ability to just take every day and go on. It hurt it when someone got executed, and I won't sit here and lie to you. I had to put myself in that same position, and I kept saying, I wonder what day it's going to be my time. 
And I even start uh, telling my friend that I didn't want my mother to come, and I, I wanted to try to shield her from. But it is something that you can't run from. It happened. You can't ignore it. They execute, and like I said, you get to know these men, and they become a family to you. And then to see them executed, and even after being executed, I had to smell. They flushed the next day. And I'm talking about it's something, a smell that I, you can't get out of your nostril. And you sit there and you think about that this was a living person. This man had a soul. And yet somehow man decided at a certain time and a certain date that they was going to take him out of this world. They're living in these five-by-seven jail cells, and uh, they're limited with outside time and communication with people. And But as they're marching these individuals down for execution, the, the whole of them bang loudly on their cell doors. Yeah, I think it's particularly incredible because these are people who couldn't see one another right. from their cells. Actually, one of the things that, that Hinton did is he established a book club on death row. I mean, he was just a remarkable person. He became the sort of counselor to all of these people. He became friends who, who was in there, he became friends with somebody from the KKK yeah. who was on death row for lynching a black man. Right. It's, it's just amazing what he has done. And it gets back to him saying, you, you can rob me of my time, but you'll never rob me of my joy. And I think that he has lived that mission and vision just in a way that very few people could ever uh, a match. It was. Thank you so much. Um, this, you have just been an incredible guest. I've learned much more about the criminal justice system today, and it's kind of nice to hear, you know, the positivity out of a really harrowing situation. Well, thank you. It's been great to be here. Let's let's also point out that Ray was so well liked that he became very close friends with the Queen of England and married, <laughs> and he married Holly Berry. Holly Berry. So I think in Sandra Bullock. I think he was only with Holly Berry for fifteen years, and at one point decided to marry Sandra Bullock. <laughs> I tricked my mind to believe that I was free, and of all the places in the world that I wanted to go, I wanted to go see Queen Elizabeth. Now, why a 29-year-old black male want to go see Queen Elizabeth? <laughs> don't ask me. You don't know where that came from? No, no. But that's where I went. And I, in my mind, I imagined showing up at the palace, and the guard went and told the queen that I was there, and she told him to bring me in. And we went in, and we talked. And uh, I tell the story that, in my mind, the queen realized that she hadn't offered me anything to drink. And finally she said, Mr. Hinton, would you like some tea? <laughs> and I said, well, I would love some tea. And she said, what would you like in your tea? And I told her, a spot of lemon. And from then on, once I realized that I could go anywhere in my mind, I did something next that I said that I would never do as a young boy. I said I would never get married. But since I was escaping, I decided I would get married, and I married the lovely and beautiful actress Halle Berry. And Halle Berry, <laughs> and, I stayed yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Halle Berry and I stayed married in my mind for 15 long, beautiful years. That, of course, was real news, but now when you talk about the non-news story that some people are talking about, including the president. Uh, they're saying that the Green New Deal, you've heard about this, right, Heather? It gets rid of, you know, cars or right. air travel. Mm. I heard it got rid of cows and 
hamburgers too. Turns out that the resolution doesn't actually say anything about cows. <laughs> how have we gotten down to this place where we are talking about cows? <laughs> I'll tell you how. Uh, because the president has referenced it sure. multiple times. Um, also, on February 12th, Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming incorrectly said that livestock would be banned and that ice cream was another victim of the proposal. <gasps> He said, say goodbye to dairy, to beef, to family farms, and to ranches. Americans' favorites like cheeseburgers and milkshakes, they're all going to be a thing of the past. (laughs) Is this an Onion article? It's not, sadly. (laughs) You'll be shocked to find out that a lot of this information also is coming from memes on Facebook. One of them says that the Green New Deal advocates building trains over the ocean. Well, that's feasible. Mm-hmm. That that makes sense. Yeah, actually, the resolution does not call for that at all. It does state that transportation emissions should be reduced over time. So it is pushing for more high-speed rail travel, but never, ever mentions getting rid of air travel because that's nonsense. (laughs) It's nonsense, which makes it the non-news story of this week. Unbelievable. Hey, look, I'm just really happy you don't get your news. And I'm using my hand quotes here, news from memes and Facebook. Yeah, well, only about 50% of it. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can follow us and tweet at us at Pod South. And at Heather Milam. And at Will Lockamy. Good show, Will. Thanks, Heather. Bye.